Wow. Praise the Lord. Amen. I absolutely love when we can find out so much more about these biblical feasts and festivals that go below, well, 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 well below and beyond the surface of what we read in that thrilling and exciting and dramatic book of the Bible, Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus really throws a curve at us because, you know, when you go to Leviticus and it starts off, for example, if you're in Leviticus chapter 2, in, in verses 4 through 8, you don't have to go there, but in Leviticus chapter 2, in, in verses 4 through 8, it says now, if you take half an ephah of flour as a grain offering and then a fellowship offering, and you combine it with this, but then if you combine it with that, you kind of get this type of offering, and then the flour should be mixed, but if the flour comes from somewhere else, then it's this type of offering, and you're wondering, Wow, am I whipped into a frenzy or what? But then as you go on through the book of Leviticus, you end up at Leviticus chapter 23. And in Leviticus chapter 23, and Steve, as you so beautifully pointed out, and thank you for your wonderful drosh today. God gave the Israelites seven annual biblical festivals, or eight if you count the weekly Shabbat. And there were many, many questions, Steve, that you answered for us in your drosh Questions that we have in the back of our minds. Here's another. In some of the festivals, for example, during the time of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was customary also on the next day on what was called the Feast of First Fruits to go and harvest barley. About seven weeks later, the Lord said, now go and harvest wheat. And then, and then after that, on this particular festival, by the way, on Sukkot, the Lord said, I want you to gather up twigs and branches, palm, willow, myrtle, and grab some fruits. And perhaps the question might arise to you, all right. God is telling the people to do all of this and to give the people these instructions while they are wandering in the wilderness. How many of you know it's really, really tough, if not impossible, to find barley growing in the desert? It's equally tough and impossible to find wheat growing in the desert. And palm and willow and myrtle and fruits, not in the desert. So why would the Lord bring these things up now when the people can't do any of them until they get into the land? How many of you love the fact that our God is a God of advance notice? A God who told the people that eventually when you get into the land, you will do these things. But I want you to know about them now and have them on your hearts now because all of these festivals will be part of a greater thing. Something wonderful to come. The festivals as we have them now are rehearsals for what is to come. And it's not so much what is to come as much as it is who is to come again. And so my message this morning, let's see, well, we've got the message and the closing prayers. So I think we've got some, some slides in between the message and the closing prayers. We'll put the message up there. But my message this morning is called Yeshua in Sukkot. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to turn to Leviticus chapter 23. And by the way, out of all of the biblical festivals that the Lord told us about in Leviticus 23, he spends the greatest number of verses on Sukkot. The verses about Sukkot are found in Leviticus 23, specifically verses 33 through 44. That's where you'll find this festival. 
And as we look at these verses, and by the way, Steve, you laid the groundwork for us uh, with, these, with these verses, giving us these verses. And I want to talk about them a little bit more. So here, uh, for Leviticus 23, what we'll do is we'll look at verses 34 through 36, and then we'll look at some more of the verses in the 40s. Leviticus 23, verses 34 through 36, the Lord said to Moses, Moses, say to the Israelites, the 15th day of the seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. The first day is a holy convocation. What is that? Answer this. It means to come together, or another way of saying it is a mikre kodesh, a sacred or a holy assembly, to come together specifically for the purpose of worshiping the Lord. So, did you see you're already carrying out the first commandment of this and you didn't even know it? Isn't that great? Effortless. Here's another one. Do no laborious work of any kind. Why? Because if you're doing work, then you're not focusing on the things of the Lord. So this is not only a Shabbat, but it's also a Shabbat. I know you got that. Let's go on. So for seven days you shall present an offering made by fire to the Lord. The priests love this. What this was is they would take a censer or a fire pen, throw some incense on it and hot coals on top of the incense and light it and the aroma from this would rise that it would be pleasing to the Lord's nostrils. And you not only did this, if you will, on Sukkot, but you also did this on Yom Kippur as well. Now, let's take a look at some other verses about Sukkot. And Steve, you actually uh, alluded to these. Leviticus 23, verses 41 through 43. Keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be, and let me take a pause here, it shall be a statute forever in your generations. Everybody say forever. Forever. Okay. Now, this is where some kind of, sometimes people have some tension with this because, well, you know, we were told that, look, this is the Old Testament and it's laws and commandments, and, and we were told that the Old Testament, the law has been done away with, but if something can, is done away with, then how can you say it's forever? How can it be forever and gone at the same time? I'm going to talk about that. Where you don't have to wrestle with it. There's an explanation for that, and you'll see it as we go on. Celebrated in the seventh month, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All the remaining of Israelites shall dwell in booths, so that your generations to come may know that I made the children dwell in booths to cope when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I want to add one more incredible thing to this fact. That all during this time when they wandered, and I love how you use the term shantytown, because I remember what that was. But can you imagine that as the Israelites were in the wilderness and they get there, think about this. Really tough to find good water. Nearly impossible to find decent food. But you got all the real estate you want. Incredible. And so, on this particular festival, when the Israelites eventually got into the land of Israel, this is what they would do. They would dwell in booths for seven days. And in fact, as we go on, Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was one of three appointed times when families were commanded to go to Jerusalem. The other two times were Pesach, or Passover, or Shavuot, or Pentecost. So during this particular time, let me tell you what happened. The day of Sukkot came, or even a couple of days before. And wherever you lived in Israel, 
you and your family were commanded to go up to ascend to Jerusalem. From whatever direction in Israel you were coming from, you would ascend because you would go to Jerusalem, which was higher in altitude, and you and your family and your community would make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. If you live, let's say, in Bethlehem or Bethany or even Jericho, you could probably do a, a, a trip like that easily for some in a couple of hours or the better part of the day. But, but what would you do, for example, if you didn't live really close to Jerusalem? What if you lived in a town called Jaffa along the Mediterranean Sea where Simon the Tanner had his house? That would be a little bit more of a journey. It would take quite a, quite a bit of time, and you'd all be walking up. might take you a day or two. So you have all the people from all the different communities walking up to Jerusalem. Some have a longer journey than most. How would they spend the time? What would they do? And we know exactly what they would do. What they would do, we're told, is they would sing songs all the way up on their ascent to Jerusalem to the temple. Wouldn't it be great, worship leader and others, wouldn't it be great if we had the lyrics to those songs today? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. We do. Praise the Lord. And let me tell you where they are. If you have a Bible, you've got the songbook. Isn't that amazing? You have the Sukkot Top 10 songbook, and there's even more. Because what the people would do is they would sing songs of the is they would sing songs of ascent or hallel, songs of praise, hallelujah. They would start, they would begin by singing Psalms 118. And then they would go on to 119, 120, 121, 22, all the way through, through finishing Psalms 136. And when they finished Psalms 136, if they still had more time before they got up to Jerusalem, guess what they would do? They would go back to Psalm 118 and start the read through all over again and do that over and over again on their ascent to Jerusalem. Why would they start specifically with Psalm 118 and then end, if you will, that set with Psalms 136? Because if you're a sharp Bible reader, you know that Psalms 118 and Psalms 136 are the same psalm. They both begin by saying, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. So the first words out of their lips as they're ascending, as they're going up to Jerusalem, let's give thanks to the Lord for everything, but in particular, a bountiful harvest. Because not only are they singing, but they're holding some things in their hands. Some of those, those fruits that we were talking about that look like oversized lemons. And, and branches of palm and willow and myrtle, and they have it right in front of them, and they're saying, Lord, give, we thank you. We give you thanks for a bountiful harvest, and we're coming up to the temple to worship you as a result. And so, Psalm 118, Psalm 136, there is this big pilgrimage or parade, if you will, of the people going up to Jerusalem for the events of the festival. Inside the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, there's a, another little old parade going on or a march going on. But it's not a lot of people at all. It's not a whole community. It's actually the priest in the temple and some musicians behind him. Now, they're inside the temple, and the, the priest actually gets hold of a golden pitcher, an actual pitcher of gold. And as those behind him are playing instruments, he is leading them. Now, as you know, there are many entrances and exits to the temple.
temple. And they were specifically exiting the temple through what was called the water gate. That's not where we got that whole scandal from. This is entirely different. You don't need to go there. But they exit the water gate because the water gate specifically brought them to a place known as the Pool of Siloam. This pool was known for healing people. They would sit around the pool, and if they saw the water move at all, and it was said that if they saw the water move because it was so still, they wondered, could an angel of God himself be stirring up that water? Then everybody would try to get the first one to jump in the pool to get healed. And so the priest goes over to this pool of Siloam and scoops up water in this golden pitcher. Now let me tell you where the water came from for the pool of Siloam. The sky, the heavens, the rain. And because of that, this water was, was fresh, it was alive, and that's one reason why this water was referred to as alive or living water or Mayim Haida. And so now that the priest had gathered the living water in his golden pitcher, he had everything he needed and then went back into the temple. So the pilgrimage is going on, and people are coming up to the temple in Jerusalem, because if you are Jewish, this is one of the required festivals when you are to go up to the temple. So, how many of you know that Yeshua was Jewish? Good. That's one of the things that, after 23 years, it took a little while, we've finally been able to dispel the rumor that no, he's not that blonde-haired and blue-eyed Norwegian who has a British accent in every filming feature film. I'm so glad we finally got that. And so, and so, of course, since this was a festival, that all those who were Jewish would come up to the temple in Jerusalem. Should it surprise any of us that Yeshua would have celebrated and observed this festival? It shouldn't. And in fact, we have in John chapter 7 in our Bibles the story of how Yeshua celebrates Sukkot. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually take you, we'll make some pauses along the way, in John chapter 7 verses 1 through 10. Wonderful story, semi-comical story as well. The twists and turns that occur in these first 10 verses are nothing like you've ever seen. So let's go. John chapter 7, verse 1, starts off with the words, after this. Okay, let's take a pause. Because how many of you know that in order for us to understand these verses, we need to know what this was? So let me tell you what this was, so that when it says after this, you'll say, okay, I've already got it. Here's what this was. This was something that occurred in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Yeshua is speaking to the masses, and, and he's giving them the plan of salvation, and they're hanging on his every word, and he absolutely loves it. People are just, they're not, they're, they, they, their eyes are on him, they're not moving. And then at one point, Yeshua says, Now, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And all of a sudden, a whole lot of people said, Bye. We didn't know, we didn't think you were going to do that. I mean, everything else you said, you know, and worship God, etc. That was cool, but, you know, eating, eating flesh, drinking, you know, yeah, that did it for us. See you later. And many left him, and, and the Bible makes that clear. And so after that happened, or after this, Yeshua went around in the Galilee. Why is he in the Galilee? Let me explain. 
The Galilee is northern Israel. Places like Tiberias, Capernaum, Kersi, uh, 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 cities and towns up there where he spent most of his time in ministry. And that would be a proper place for him to be at just about any time of the year. But now it's Sukkot. And on Sukkot, you're not supposed to be up north. You're supposed to go down, oh, give or take 80, 90 miles to the south to Jerusalem to go to the temple. So what is he still doing up in the Galilee when he's commanded as uh, uh, by this festival to go and make the pilgrimage to the temple? Well, let's find out. It says he went in the Galilee. He didn't want to go about to the temple in Judea because why? Because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. That might be a good reason, you think? So now we, we kind of have a little biblical tension going on here. And the tension is Yeshua is in the Galilee. And the reason that he's up there is, is because if he goes down to the temple, uh, he, he, he risks others coming to take his life. But then again, what do you do? Because at the same time, you are commended by God the Father to go to the temple in Jerusalem. So what do we do here? What decision will he make? His brothers say, this would be a good time for us to chime in and help him out. And so here's what they say in John chapter 2, verses 3 through a, the first part of verse 2 to the first part of verse 3. But when Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was near, Yeshua's brother said to him, Listen, you need to leave Galilee and go to Judea. Wow! God blessed those brothers. They wanted him to do the right thing. Not so fast. Let me tell you why they told him to go. It says in John 7, last part of verse 3 to verse 5, Yeshua, we think you should go to the temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because you need to obey God the Father? No, so that your disciples there may see all the works and the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a celebrity acts in secret. Yeshua, you're up in the Galilee. I, I mean, your miracles, you do this, you do this, everybody should see it, but Yeshua, the Galilee right now is a ghost town. Why? It's, it was worse than a shanty town. Why? Because all the people who would normally be in Galilee have already gone down to the temple. And so Yeshua, if you hang around here in the Galilee, instead of going to the temple, you could do miracle after miracle after miracle, but, but you won't be able to impress anybody because nobody's here to see it. Since you're doing these things, go and show yourself to the world. The world is at the temple right now. And then it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. And so as we go on here, in John chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, Therefore Yeshua said to them, he said, you know, my time has not yet come to go to the festival. Your time is always the day. You can go anytime, but the world can't hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I, I call it into account. I testify that its works are, are evil. I call, I, I call people on the carpet. You go up to the feast. I am not going to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. So Yeshua tells his brothers to go up to the feast. And Yeshua says, I'm not going yet. It's not my time. So then let's go on and see what happens in John chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. After these saying these things, he stayed in the Galilee. But after his brothers went to the feast, he also went. Not openly, but secretly. Time out. 
it would appear that we have a contradiction here. Yeshua just told his brothers, listen, you guys go to the feast. I'm not going. It's not yet my time. And then his brothers left to go to the feast, and they left him alone. And what's the very next thing Yeshua did? He said, okay, I'm going to the feast. Contradiction? Of course not. Yeshua was not going to the feast <laughs> with them. <laughs> Think about it. Can you imagine Yeshua going to the feast and trying just to worship God in spirit and in truth? And while you're trying to do that, have all of your brothers around you say, hey, come on, come over here. Watch what he does. It's a distraction. And by the way, when he said, any time is right for you, but my time has not yet come, he wasn't referring to his time on whether to go to the feast or not. He was referring on his time on whether to go to the cross or not. And guys, that wouldn't happen on Sukkot. It would happen six months later at Passover. So he goes to the feast. And at one point as he's at the feast, remember a little while ago I told you about that priest who went to the pool of Siloam with the others playing instruments and took the pitcher and gathered up the living water in the pitcher? Well, as Yeshua is at the feast, now we're going to find out what the pitcher of gold water, this gold pitcher, what the pitcher of living water is for. Pretty much near the end of the feast at this time, and there had been animal sacrifice all through the week. And now that the feast was coming to an end, guess what? That altar was pretty bloody. And that's what you would use the golden pitcher of living water for. You would take the pitcher and pour out this mayim hayim, or living water, this healing water from the pool of Siloam, on the altar to wash away the blood. We're told that we have it on a good note that during this time there were, I guess you could call them like almost two pipelines or two pipeways that went away from the altar and, and brought went back to the pool of Siloam. One pipeline, if you will, theoretically for blood, another theoretically for water. So I want you to catch the imagery here. We've had animal sacrifices, blood shed, and when all is said and done, we had one trail of blood and another trail of water. Does that remind you of something? Something, for example, that might happen about six months later in John chapter 19, verse 34. When Yeshua, who is our once and for all sacrifice, is there on the cross, shedding his blood, and it says there that in order to ensure that he was dead, you remember this, a Roman soldier came over, pierced his side, and out came blood and water. The fulfillment of what happened with animal sacrifices that couldn't really ever take away your sins six months before it's to go. And Yeshua's watching this as the priest is taking a pitcher of gold and washing away the, the blood and the water from the sacrifice, this living water. And so should it surprise us that as he sees this living water coming down and realizes that he's the fulfillment of this, that he says this on the last and greatest day of the festival, Yeshua stood and said in a loud voice, you want redemption, you want salvation? Fine, let anyone who is thirsty come not to an animal sacrifice anymore. Come to me and drink. You drink from me, you will never thirst. Streams of living water will flow through him. Now you know why he said it. It's an allusion to the water from the pool of Siloam. Now it was also, during this time, something else happened. And it's recorded in John chapter 7 verse 53 through John chapter 8 verse 12. Many of you might know the story. In fact, you probably do. 
Because it was during Sukkot that you, we, you hear and we read about this famous story of the woman who was caught in adultery. The Pharisees, the chief priests, the spies, they get a hold of a woman and they bring her into the temple because she has committed adultery. Now, there's two problems here. The first is, last I checked, adultery takes two. Where's the guy? But the second is, if they knowingly bring a woman who is in sin, in ritual impurity, and they knowingly bring in that woman who, because of her condition, defiles the temple, then they are now in just as much sin as she is because they knowingly brought someone in to corrupt the temple in Jerusalem. Now, why they bring her in? Why would they go through that? Because they figure it's worth it. And here's why they figure it's worth it. Standing in the temple at this time are Roman guards and Jewish guards, or Jewish members, if you will, of the Beit Din, the court, the Sanhedrin. And so they bring this woman in who is caught in adultery, and they say, Yeshua, this woman committed adultery. What should be done with her? And whatever answer they think Yeshua is going to give, he's going to get arrested. And the question is, by whom? Because you see, Torah, Jewish law said, if a woman is caught in adultery, you stone her to death. And that is Jewish law. And if Yeshua said stone her to death, the Jewish members of the Sanhedrin who are there, the guards would say, yeah, that's right, that's our law. Mm, can't get them on anything. But you see, there are also Roman magistrates there in that temple as well. And that's against their law. And so they would arrest him. But on the other hand, if Yeshua says, well, what should be done with her? Uh, you know, nothing, everything's fine, don't stone her to death. Well, the Roman magistrates would say, okay, we don't have a problem with him. But then the Jewish magistrates and guards come after him and get arrested. So they say, we got him. Either way, it's either going to be the Jews or the Romans who arrest him, but we don't care, he'll get arrested. We got it. And so after they ask Yeshua the question, so what's going to be? What's your choice, Yeshua? What do you say, stone her or not stone her? And isn't it wonderful that we have a Messiah who isn't limited to the choices we throw at him? We gave him A and B. He said, you know, uh, I got option C. And let me tell you what my option is. And it's recorded here in John chapter 8, last part of verse 6. Yeshua knelt down and began writing in the dust with his finger. And then, as you know, the story goes on. He got up and he said, okay, now let any of you without sin cast the first stone. And they all started slinking away. And for centuries, people have been asking these three questions. Why did Yeshua write specifically with his finger? Number two, why did he write in the dust? And number three, what did he write? You're going to be so glad you came here this morning. Because I'm about to give you the actual answer to all three of those questions. Hold on to your seats. And it's not speculation. The Bible backs it up. Why did Yeshua write with his finger? He wrote with his finger, my friends, because 
There was something, if you will, in Jewish law at the time that we actually have in print. It was later recorded in something called the Mishnah. That's the Hebrew word Mishnayot. A compilation of ideas and commands and different interpretations of the rabbis regarding how to worship and observe the Shabbat. And it says in this part of the Mishnah, on the rules of Shabbat 12.5, it says, One who writes with liquid, fruit juice, or if one drew letters or wrote with anything that does not last, he is exempt from breaking the Sabbath. So, are you allowed to write on Shabbat? Well, if you write with something that's permanent, you broke the Sabbath. But if you write with something that doesn't last, you have not broken the Sabbath. Why did Yeshua use his finger to write? Because if you write something with your finger, it doesn't last. The wind comes and blows it away. That's why he wrote with his finger. But why specifically did he write in the dust? Because he was fulfilling Bible prophecy. Some 800 years earlier, the prophet Jeremiah said this. Jeremiah 17, 13. All who forsake you, Lord, will be put to shame. Those, Lord, who turn away from you, remember, these are the high holy days in the time where we are to turn from sin and turn to him. If you go the opposite direction and you turn from him to sin, your names will be written in the dust. Why? Because they've forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So the one who is the living water not only fulfills the prophecy of Jeremiah by writing their names, if you will, in the dust, but shows, shows that he indeed is the fulfillment of the living water that cleansed the sacrifice where the blood and the water both ran. It would happen six months later and O.P.S. Oh, he's the sacrifice too. But what did he write? Here's the fun part. That is the Greek word that means to write. It's pronounced grapho. It's where you get the word graphite for your pencils. But there's another Greek word that also means to write. Let me kind of break this down for you. I think I've got, do I have a laser on here? Yeah, I do. These, these uh, if you will, this kind of root, you see how that looks like a Y? And that looks like a Y? So this is grapho, and this is graphene over here. So it's essentially the same word, to write and to write. However, in this to write, we have these first four letters, looks like almost K-A-T-N. This is the only place in scripture where you don't see this kind of writing. You see this word for to write. Why do you need two different words? Because they're not talking about the same type of writing. Uh, this, by the way, this word, of course, is pronounced katagraphene. And so we know that grapho, graphene, means to write, but now we've got to figure out what kata means. And there is a way to do that, because that Greek word kata appears here in Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Let me show it to you. As Yeshua is speaking to his disciples and others on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, look, if you are presenting your offering upon the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against, katam, 
You leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So, grapho means to write. Katagraphi means specifically to write against someone. Why are you writing against them? Because again, Jeremiah 17, 13 said, Lord, those who forsake you. If you forsake the Lord, that means you know what the righteous and the holy way is to walk, but you have intentionally turned and gone the other way. What does it mean to turn away from the Lord? It means to turn to sin. Therefore, Yeshua is writing with his finger because it doesn't last. He's writing in the dust to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah, and, and he is is writing an accounting of the sins of those who are standing right in front of him, right then, right there. And that's why he specifically says in the next verse, now, he doesn't just simply say, let any of you without sin cast the first stone. He says, now, now that I've written your sins, go ahead, let any of you still say, that you're without sin. P.S. you can. And go ahead and cast the first stone. Now that I've got you and I've laid it all out. Go ahead. Anybody? Any takers? And that's why they all moved away. And then what did Yeshua say to the woman? He said, woman. He says, they're gone. Your accusers have gone. And he says, go and sin no more. And then. And then in the next verse in John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. It almost sounds like that should be the start of another chapter, doesn't it? Because if you take those two verses, they really don't juxtapose that well. You know? <laughs> Women, go on. You're without sin. I am the light of the world. It, it, they, they, they don't fit. It sounds like two separate thoughts. It's kind of like, my car needs a new carburetor. French toast. They don't make sense. <laughs> yeah, they do. Well, let me explain. Remember I told you about the people making that pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, some near, some far. If they came from really far away, how would they be able to better see where they were going at night when there were no street lights? Well, it's at this time of the year, the only time of the year, that the temple had these huge torches that would go up to the sky, four of them. And, and some people believe, and Steve, this would go perfectly along with what you taught before about the fact that Yeshua was born during Sukkot. Could it be more than just a coincidence that, that the, the fire coming out of these torches was able to be ignited and lit because, because of swaddling cloths? And because the torches were so high up in the sky and could be seen from miles around as people were going up to the place of righteousness, the temple at this time of the year had a name that it was called only at this time of the year and no other. It was referred to as <laughs> the light of the world. And so that's why Yeshua said that he is the light of the world. Now that we've got that, now we have to look at just another theme over here. Because each of these festivals plays a part, it's a point, it's a signpost in God's plan of salvation. Passover, Yeshua's crucifixion. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, he's placed in the tomb. The Feast of First Fruits, Yom HaBikurim, it's his resurrection day. Shavuot, or Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down. Rosh Hashanah, the blowing of the trumpet in the days of old to announce the day of the Lord to come. Yom Kippur, our once and for all atonement, Zechariah says, we will look upon him when we pierce and we'll mourn for him. They'll finally get it and one mourns for an only son. 
And after that time, then we have the second coming. And that's really what Sukkot looks forward to. That opportunity that we had to dwell with him in the wilderness, because listen, we weren't just dwelling in booths by ourselves. We knew who provided it. It was like God dwelling with us and we dwelling with him. So there's some second coming. There's a lot of second coming imagery in here. And something else called the marriage feast. Now let's go to the next level. Let me take you through it. First of all, in Revelation chapter 13, Verses 1 through the last part of verse 2, last part of verse 3, and verse last part of verse 4. And I'm going to give you these verses, and we'll put it all together. It says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea that had ten horns and seven heads. On his horns were ten royal crowns, and upon his heads were slanderous names. The beast was like a leopard, his feet like a bear's, his mouth like a lion's. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They also worship the beast, chanting, Who is like the beast? What an abomination of Mikamocha Ba'ilimandonai, who is like you, our God, and who can make war against him? So we have this imagery of a beast rising out of the sea in Revelation 13. Let's go on. So here's an imagery for you of this beast. We have the Lord with a sword over there. And the beast, in, 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 in many instances, is seen as either a sea monster or a dragon here. Let's go on, just so you have this imagery. The dragon is referred to as Leviathan, or Leviathan, in Job chapter 41. So let's put these blocks together. We've got the beast of Revelation chapter 13. That beast, we're told, is called Leviathan in Job 1.41, a reference to a sea monster. Now listen to this. In rabbinic writings, it says, the Holy One will in time to come make a banquet for the righteous from the flesh or the skin of Leviathan. Hang on, I'm going to give you some more clues. Let's look at Revelation 19, verses 11 through 12. Because now the one who is going to slay Leviathan comes. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one riding on it is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war and righteousness. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and many royal crowns are on his head. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. We all know who this is referring to. It's his second coming. This is Sukkot imagery going on here. And now let's find out what he does. In Revelation 19, 19 through 21, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the one who sat on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured along with the false prophet who performed the signs before him by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast as well as those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with what? With the sword coming out of the mouth of the one riding on the horse. Now look, Isaiah 27 verse 1 told you that this was going to happen. Because it says, in that day, Adonai will punish Leviathan the flame serpent with his fierce, great, strong sword. So the events that we're looking at of the, his coming and of his slaying of the beast, this Leviathan, were prophesied thousands of years ago in Isaiah chapter 27. Leviathan, this twisted serpent, he, the Lord, Yeshua, will slay the dragon in the sea. Y'all following me so far? It gets better. Don't you love that? Here we go. Let us rejoice and be glad because we said that as, as he comes... There's a marriage feast, everybody. 
In fact, you remember a couple of slides ago, it says that the rabbis say that um, uh, perhaps in the future, when we die in the sukkah, it will have the skin of Leviathan on it. Celebrating, celebrating not only our Lord's coming, but the fact that he slayed our enemies. Let us rejoice and be glad and give all the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said, write this down. Blessed are those who have been invited to the marriage feast. These are the true words of God. So we've got the second coming. Leviathan is put to death. We have this wonderful marriage feast and it still gets better. Sukkot, in case you didn't know this, actually concludes with a prayer recited upon leaving the sukkah. So uh, Lynn and Audrey on the last day or the last night of the sukkah, don't be surprised if someone says a prayer like this. May it be your will, Lord, our God and God of our forefathers, that just as I have fulfilled and dwelt in the sukkah, so may I merit in the coming year to dwell in the sukkah of the skin of Leviathan. He has come. He has won the victory. And we're invited to the wedding. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, it's real now. It's, it's real. Like, remember when you were in the wilderness and, and God provided the booze for you? And when you were in the booze, he said, this is so wonderful. This only comes from God. It's like we are dwelling with him and he's dwelling with us. Yes, and, 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 remember, and remember in the story of the Gospels, when Yeshua was born and he came, and what did he do? He dwelt among us and we dwelt with him. And now it's going to be better because it's no longer symbolic as it was in Exodus and Leviticus. And it's no longer temporary as it was in the Gospels. Now it says God's dwelling places among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And that's where the forever comes in. And how do we know that? Because something can't be temporary. If Zechariah 14, 16 says this, then all the survivors from all the nations that attack Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate Sukkot. Praise the Lord! And these are the days, and these are the times that we look forward to, and we rehearse now, so when you, not if, but when you go to Linwood and Audrey's house sometime this week, and I know, I know, Lisa, you're going to come up and talk about that, but, but I, I, I want to, I want to, something is so good, I want to mention it twice. When you go and you come into their sukkah and you see yourself dwelling in that place, it can remind you of what was, but also will be. It will remind you of the Israelites dwelling in the Sukkot, in these booths in the wilderness. But let it also remind you of the one who will come again to dwell with us for all eternity. We close us in a word of prayer. Hallelujah. Amen. Our Father, our King. Lord, thank you for showing us in the word that each and every word 
From the first letter of the first word, Genesis, to the last letter of the last word, Revelation. Was, is, and always will be all about Yeshua. We look forward, Lord, to that great, great day and that time to come where you will bring everlasting peace. Where the enemies, whatever they happen to be called, Lord, Behemoth, Leviathan, and so many others, we would not have to worry about them anymore. Because there will be no more pain, there will no, be no more gnashing of teeth. It will just be a blessed time of holiness and spiritual intimacy with you as we look forward to dwelling with you and you with us for all eternity. In the precious and holy name of Yeshua, and everyone agreed and said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Okay, also we have two other announcements.